Welcome to Interscription. Contrary to popular opinion, homework is in fact fun. Join us this week as we work through a trio of Game Pass releases and their various flavors and make a stop in Wakanda for the new Black Panther movie. And Rich categorically answers the question, what's in a score? Thanks for staying on this road with us. And so, like, right now, we should start podcasting. Okay, but not before now. Nope, mm-hmm. it is right now. So, yeah, we were um, excitedly talking about guests and picked up mm-hmm. somewhere in the conversation of that because we're going to go do that this Friday. And I love yeah. that, and I love that we're going to do it together. And so we've done uh, Jethro Tull. We've done, yeah. yes, uh, we did Rush, which is, you know, I guess, really a generation younger um, you know, really not as 70s, like not as early 70s, late 70s and really into the 80s early on, would you say? Like they're I not mean, contemporaries of Yes and Jethro Tull. I wouldn't put them as contemporaries. I would. Like I, I feel like like there's a, I want to say uh, Yes and Rush actually uh, did Roundabout together on a live performance much later in their career. Um, so uh, I think so. I think super early on, I, I want to say... I want to say, like, if you're talking about the first couple albums of Rush, I think I think they're pretty darn close. We can Google this to make sure we're not just guessing right now. But I'm, I want to say that they're actually pretty close. When when you say contemporaries, too, it's tough because it's, it, you know, in that era of, you know, you know, and I always think of the kind of top five there for me. I think about Rush. I think about Pink Floyd. Uh, I think about Yes, um, Jethro Tull, uh, and... ELP? I'll say ELP. Yes, ELP. Uh, I was almost about five. to verge into the Who or Led Zeppelin, but I, I stopped and uh, and you saved me. So ELP would be better. Um, and when I, it's interesting around that, a uh, buddy of mine uh, uh, in Texas, his name's Henry. Um, we've had some conversations about like kind of that era of music. And there's this sort of divergence of the, the, the bands and, and like where they sit in the sort of progressive part of progressive rock and and how weird and uh, esoteric some of their stuff will be and if they have these big long concept albums or not or you know and and um you know and some of them were really just like blues rock bands right like I, yeah. I i think as important as led zeppelin was and you know as much as you know some of the stuff got a little bit weird here and there for them that largely that's a blues rock band to me right um i think some of the material from pink floyd you know as 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 psychedelic as pink floyd could get veers into that territory of that kind of like kind of bluesy sort of feel you know particularly some of the the lead you know guitar movement right in and around some of their more popular stuff very very bluesy um, and it all gets real muddy, right? You know, and 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 the very first stuff from Jethro Tull, actually, the their his uh, this was and stand up, like the old 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 albums, like those were very bluesy, like they were like like you know down home porch blues, yep. like they were very 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 crunchy stuff, uh, you know, and so like some of them evolved their sound too. So it's it's tough when you say contemporaries, right? And and the very I've I've talked about this about Rush. I think you know as as a died in the wool Rush fan, I I, I certainly you know, may not be particularly objective here, but I will say that like they are about as close to progressive in the progressive rock as anybody I could 
mention in that you know pantheon of progressive rock simply because their sound changed over time and they just kept progressing they just kept changing they just kept moving along finding new instruments finding new ways of writing finding new time i mean whole albums just moving on to different almost full genres right i mean sure you can say rock you can always say rock but with with that being the broad kind of platform that they they launch from there's just so many uh corners of their 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 stuff so much so that there's people who only like parts of Russia's out of, of, of uh, their uh, their their uh, anthology, right? Right. Um, so anyway, I just think it's uh, it's interesting to kind of like you know pick through um, all of them, and but yeah, I guess largely when we say largely progressive rock, like that whole era of 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 guys back from then, I think uh, I think these uh, yes is definitely one of them there for yeah. sure. Now and uh, yeah, I will of course correct because I did Google and yes, the self titled first album of yes it was nineteen sixty nine. And Rush, the self-titled first album for Rush, was March of 74. So, yeah, I mean, they really are contemporaries, and I don't know why. I think a lot of it is just that late 70s, early 80s influence of synths that Rush really pioneered in ways that were beyond the um, synth stylings for Yes and some of the other prog rock bands more defined what was going to happen with pop and jazz and rock into the 80s and like they were really kind of more on the forefront and so I've always just kind of in my mind connected to the heart of their sound and the heart of their era with the early 80s and not like in the same way as like you know wham or something like that but it's like the really pioneering stuff where they were using analog and then early digital synths in ways that very few other artists were and so like it's i'm now seeing it like yeah they're like five years apart like yes they were both like enormous in the heyday of prog rock in the late 70s where all of this really took the shit off um and i've never really thought about yes stretching into the 80s even though like a lot of their catalog obviously did Sure. So, yeah, it's like a cognitive distortion, but really interesting just how close like they all were to that moment. Yeah, for sure. And it is also fair to say that um, probably when you think specifically in the lane of synthesizers and 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 uh, and uh, really anything with a keyboard, right? When you think about it, there's a there's a almost workmanlike quality of what happened with Rush. Like I, I think Rush definitely had. You know they were playing with the the Oberheim over polyphonic and they were you know like like the you know like the very early dabblings of what you know synthesis was going to be right um before you got into say subdivisions where they were just using you know keyboards right like full-on electronic keyboards um and so but it was always you got to think that's just three guys right it was always three guys yep. it was never not three guys so like for them this was just a way to fill out a sound right like this is just we make more sound with three people if we have you know foot pedals that can do synthesis and keyboard stuff and we have a keyboard in front of us that we can jump to for a second and you know and all of the ways in which they played over time right you know like that to to them there was almost like a uh, this was a, another band member, you know, um, whereas Yes had, um, had you know, depending on which version of Yes you're talking about, you know, which keyboard player you, you have, you know, in, in, in which incarnation of the two versions of Yes, um, there was always a keyboard player and there's always somebody manning the keys, right? Like, and that's all they did, right? Like you right. always had a bass player and you always had a keyboard player and you always had a singer, right? Like there, there were always separate people that were dealing with that 
problem, right, in the band. And that's uh, sort of a functional difference, too. So I think in terms of, like, the sound taking off and, like, all of the amazing... Uh, uh explorations that happened with uh with with synthesizers with yes probably pushed a lot further not to take away any of the incredible work rush did around that but but i think rush was always using that as a tool right like you would never say getty lee wasn't the bass player and wasn't the singer he just also happened to use his other limbs to do other things at that time um and then you know whereas you pivot to yes and there was always a keyboard player that was doing fantastic synth stuff right like there was it was always just a dedicated keyboard player that was just forging that art and that art alone um and so i think that'll be super interesting to see um on friday that'll be a a fascinating uh uh, piece of the lineup to to check out really really cool stuff super looking forward to it um so yeah i didn't want to go deep into prog rock that we haven't heard yet but yeah i'm just super excited about it i'm Um, ready for rock and roll dude literally rock and roll yeah so we have kind of pre-gamed a little bit on this week, and uh, the reality is that I've uh, taken all of my time to make music and none of it to play games or really catch up on anything. Um, I did watch some Andor, uh, so I'm relatively caught up on that, which, uh, you know, I hate to get too into those shows until, like, they're done and, you know, fully baked in. Um, but you, sir, have done the work this past week. I've gotten some work in. I've gotten some work. Some uh, so uh, I'll throw out all the topics, and then you just tell me where we should start, and then please uh, keep me honest to not just sit here and yammer on and uh, it turn into me just talking <laughs> because uh, I did do a lot of. Uh, uh, homework, as they say. So um, over the weekend, I took the boys to Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And I got to go see the uh, the second Black Panther movie. Um, and then uh, I got to play a trio of games, um, all of which were... Um, were very enjoyable in, in different ways um, and uh, extremely different games between the three of them. Uh, the first was Vampire Survivors, uh, second was Somerville, and the third was Pentiment. Um, and Somerville I actually beat um, So uh, during that time. So got a big old... Uh, uh, drop of content as as it were uh there so uh wherever wherever you want to be uh, with respects to andor I, I i am that is in my shine pile i my oldest and i we really got to get to watching that i have not even touched it and uh you know i was seeing a really great buzz about it and everybody said universally that they love it and i just got to get over there i've uh, been cleaning up some other you know shows and staying current on walking dead and that so uh didn't get over to andor yet but uh I'll, I'll try to do some homework on the on the uh, thanksgiving break and come back on that for sure yeah yeah so tell me about bacana uh, do you want to start there or? let's start there it's perfect yeah um Great movie, great movie. Uh, I'm gonna uh, say another worthwhile Marvel movie, uh, worthwhile movie in the Black Panther, uh, you know, saga of movies. Now too deep, of course, with with the second one, and um, really interesting thing that this movie had to do. Um, so Chadwick Boseman, who played Black Panther in the first one, uh, passed away two years ago now from cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, was pretty private about it, I guess, at the time. So people didn't really know until, you know, it was um, fairly advanced for him. So um, so I think that the my understanding was actually that some of the writing kind of had to be impacted a little bit, let alone the production, because they had to just make some different choices about what they were going to do about the Black Panther and the, and the character there. Um, so, um, so they do address it. They address it head on. They, that is, uh, that is absolutely like, there's no, um, 
you know, Lucasfilm, let's draw Leia in for three movies, uh, you know, with, with found footage and CG, let's, you know, and, and just fake it because, you know, this person isn't around anymore. Um, uh, they they are very clear about the fact that the Black Panther that you knew in the first one is no longer here anymore. And they, 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 they handle it, uh, early. And in point of fact, I want to, um, I want to say that it, it is, I, I, nothing less than triumphantly handled that part that I think that is an outstanding, uh, part of this movie. Um, my favorite things about this movie, um, tough using the word favorite, uh, the most successful um, pieces of this movie are how it handles grief and how it talks about grief. Um, and I think for uh, a comic book movie, right, uh, um, that is, you know, part of this, you know, Disney pantheon of, you know, you know, not unstoppable force movies that just keep coming out, you know, uh, every few months and uh, continue to push this uh, rather large and uh, well uh, shepherded for the most part, uh, fiction, uh, forward. I, I think, um, you don't always expect that something as mature as death and grief and loss is going to be handled, uh, well. Um, I, um, I'll try to say pretty spoiler light here. I will say that the movie closes with, with kind of almost like a cold close and it opens with a cold open in a way that, uh, uh, is very uncharacteristic and it is very mature movie making. I, I wasn't expecting that movie making to be handled so maturely. Um, unsettling when it starts, unsettling it when it ends. And, 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 uh, um, for all of, you know, <laughs> I guess they talk about it with, you know, with concerts and stuff, you know, start strong and end strong. Right. And they, they, uh, they do that fantastically well. It's, uh, easily some of the most beautiful, um, uh, acting around, around handling, uh, the grief around uh, his passing um, as a fictional character, but then certainly, you know, as that echoes is an actor that's not with us anymore. Um, I, I really, uh, I really will say that um, it's, it's peerless is certainly among the other Marvel movies, but in, in quite a few movies that I've seen that have tried to handle grief and just sort of, you know, hand wave it or, um, and I, I would, I would even uh, punt back to you. I, it's interesting to, to think a little bit about uh, how, um, uh, you know, you, you had actually sent me a piece of music uh, pretty recently as you were you were doing some of your your uh, more recent patches and, and you were kind of looking at that as being more like a score um, that you were interested in, uh, not for any particular project, right? But just, you know, you're working on patches and you're working on, you know, things to, you know, sort of, you know, where your music writing uh, took you as you were moving with different uh, virtual instruments. And uh I, I think in TV shows and movies, um, it's a, it's an interesting balance, right? And I, I think uh, uh, we've talked about, you know, uh, Mr. John Williams and his uh, his very uh, uh, direct <laughs> to to not be too uh, uh, reductive of him, but his very direct way of uh, scoring things and how his his musical scores are very bombastic and they're very, you know, full of you know tasty skittles, right? Like it's just a big, you know, big you know, big yep. sound. It's all big. It's very big. And so it's, it's job is to make you feel things, right? It's to make you feel things. And it's not even making you feel things. It's strong arming you into feeling things, right? Like you, you must feel this way about what's going on. You don't really have a choice. And, um, and I think music from an additive perspective is, is important. Right. Um, and so, um, 
I guess maybe as a kind of a sidebar before I kind of finish out on Black Panther, how do you feel about that? Like the the role there in scoring, like because there's a there's an effective part of scoring things that assist you in your feelings, and yet um, there's also this bludgeoning that happens yeah. sometimes with scoring. And like, and where's your responsibility as somebody who creates music for a a piece of fiction? You know, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. Uh, you know, one of the uh, thoughts I always have, you know, I, I think about, you know, as a bass player, you've heard this a lot, you know, which is, you know, the best bass players are felt, not heard. And I think there's some truth to that because then you listen to some of the best bass players in the world and like you tune into it and like, it's not necessarily the focus of the song, but then like your, your focus shifts. It's like your eyes focusing, like going from a macro to a telephoto lens and something else is just in the picture. And those motherfuckers are just going crazy at the bottom of that tune. And like you listen and it's actually the glue that's holding everything together, playing some incredibly complex stuff sometimes in the pocket and just like adding like this, this depth to an undulating track. And, you know, you think about like, um, the Motet and Cheap Shed or Soul Live and like oh, some of these different bands that are like in that kind of like funk era and like the bass is more prominent, but it's still not the not necessarily the centerpiece of the song, but the song doesn't work. None of it works without it. And I think really good scoring is, you know, I think you've said this before, you know, one of the reasons why we like horror, one of the reasons we like comedy is because it is conversational. And, you know, I think a good score is helping that conversation. It's helping bring the viewer to where they need to be and to give them those breadcrumbs and those little treats and winks and nods before the film action and the dialogue catches up with it. And so you can do a lot, you know, with just, um, you know, a long sustained string with you know two violins that are half step off to just create some discordance and some tension really softly coming into a particular scene um and one of the things that somebody like john williams who i you know will never say i love you know i think he's very primary but one of the reasons why his stuff is so enduring in something like star wars is what he was good at was the simplicity in designing themes around different characters and so, you know, whenever Leia is in a scene, you get that particular, like, melodic piece and you get something different on a different world. And some of it's hokey as hell, but it is enduring. Like, you know exactly, like, without thinking about it, what do Ewoks sound like? Like, you know what they're playing, you know, when they're jamming out and partying as the little Muppet critters that they are. And that's very different than the villain music whenever Darth comes on and you can just like hum that shit. And I think you've got those two roles, right? And mm -hmm. I think horror scoring is some of the best scoring. Like I really, I love that where it's adding suspense. It's just adding a veneer to everything that's special and spectacular and it's hitting the right jumps and it's jumping with you, but it's giving you that sense of, this may not be safe. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be here kind of feeling before there's any reason. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, 
Get Out and Nope and all of those, like, they have those, like, really long opening shots where, like, somebody's driving to something and there's nothing wrong. Like, it's just a family in a car having a nonsense conversation. There's no evil-looking, ominous deer or anything. Like, they're just chatting. But between, like, the long pull-out of the camera angle and this, like, underlying, like, just drone in the sound, like, from the opening credits that just keeps going through that opening scene... Mm-hmm. We're telling you, this is not a happy family vacation. Like, these people are not going to have fun. <clears throat> it's not going to be good. And that's a technique that he's kind of used in all three films to varying degrees, where you're taking these mundane, happy moments that really don't have any foreboding in them and mm-hmm. injecting them. And I think the best scores, depending on the kind of movie, are giving you both of those. And so, something like uh, Wakanda Forever is more of a hero tale, right? Like it is Mm -hmm. a Marvel property. And so I'm imagining that they're also going less into foreboding and more into the establishing theme and connection with the characters in a way that music can do far more subconsciously uh, than, um, you know, just talking or showing. Yeah, definitely. The the cold open and cold close that I talked about, I think... um, it's interesting to me because I think then it requires um, like almost a partnership, you know, and I, I think it's probably a really interesting, um, like an interesting like writing uh, partnership with maybe the director and the editor, right? Because like the way that the movie starts is cold with zero music and the way that it ends is cold with zero music. And like you would... And it was so effective. It was so effective to do that. And it was, you could feel the, uh, you could feel it missing, right? Like you could feel the, the space that it left behind because you're right. These are superhero movies. They just, you feel the, the, the momentum of it with the score, right? The score goes with the visuals, goes with the acting, goes with the everything. And for them to like go cold on both sides of it was such an interesting artistic choice. Um, and I, I really loved that. I felt like it really, um, it talked about without, and in some ways there were just moments in there that were even wordless in those moments, but they were, were both sides of, of how one expresses and experiences grief. Um, so truly interesting, uh, movie in that, uh, and, and in that way it's a triumph there. I, I haven't seen a movie of any kind superhero or not that handles that maybe quite as deftly as this did. It took that part of this, uh, deadly seriously. And I, I, um, I, I appreciated that. I, I think that was good for that. Um, just raw metrics on a, on a superhero movie level. Um, it was a good movie in that way i don't think that i may be in the terms of the nuts and bolts of being a superhero movie that maybe it was quite as good um but it was good i i I thought that you know the the villain was fleshed out they did a great job fleshing out the villain really good job um you have mentioned several times that the marvel villains are usually more fleshed out than you know some other uh uh properties and this is no different namor is is a is a, is a great character and they, they do well by him. Um, so I, I think that in that way, I, I, uh, I, I, I think it was successful. I'm not going to say it was my favorite Marvel movie. Um, because also in some ways it just had some homework to do, right? Like some of this, this bit about grief and loss and death is, is stuff that just was going to be handled and it was going to be handled in a way that I think kind of had to be, I think if you hand wave it or if you spend too much time, um, 
uh, paving over it, I think you would would break it a little bit. So I think that it handled it head on and maturely. Um, and so that was really the the mission here. Um, a couple of characters got introduced during this uh, movie, and um, it reminded me that this is a <laughs> that Marvel is a property. It is not. It is not just. It's not just a handful of stories. It's not just some movies. It's not just some TV shows. It is a property that is being handled still. Um, as much as She-Hulk was god awful, the Kevin Robot thing was was very prescient about how um, you know there are hands on the wheel at all times. Um, I had heard about the fact that there was a character coming out of this that was going to get their own TV show on Disney Plus, and so we got to have that. So um, that part to me, I felt like that character didn't get enough screen time here to be all that important, other right. than to say, "Hey, you get to go see this character on our Disney Plus show whenever the hell that comes out." And um, that was a little icky, and from a business standpoint, I don't think you get out of that at this point. I'm, I think that's just the ride we're on. You know, you either totally. decide to just not watch some of these shows or just jump off the ride entirely. But, uh, but that that was a, you know, that was one small part that I was like, nah. I'm not crazy about me getting my homework assignment telegraphed to me uh, on this movie. You know, um, and uh, that, you know, and but other than that, I, I think it was handled very well. Um, uh, Queen Ramonda, uh, um, uh, the Black Panther's uh, mother that is now, you know, acting queen, like queen regent, you know, um, waiting, you know, for who's going to be assigned the next Black Panther. Um, Angela Bassett, man, she, you know, and there's no, no question that she's an incredible actress, but I got to say she had like two different moments in this movie, like, and cause she's in it, you know, for the vast majority of the, the, the movie, it like centers on her as much as it centers on her daughter. And, um, and, uh, she has two, like, like big acting times, big acting times. Like she got to like, you know, pull out acting hat and put on <laughs> acting hat and do, and do the acting, you know, it was, uh, um, stunning, from, stunning from moments the with academy. Her. I love it. Is it What'd you say? Like I missed from it. the Academy or what is, what is it inside the actor's studio? Like whatever that like PBS, like oh, yeah. and behind <laughs> the like, scenes, yeah. like we're, we're putting on the gloves and no, we are acting now. Like, a, mm. sorry, I'm going to drop and diaphragm breathe and make sure I project to the back of the house. <laughs> She's so dead. She's so dead. Like it was, it was, it was, it felt very, not in a hokey way at all, but it felt very like stage acty, right? Like, you know what I mean? But like exactly that you are in this theater in the middle of the village somewhere and you are going to project, you know, you're going to let yes. everyone know that you are acting, please come to my show. And it was, uh, so she did outstanding work there. Um, surprisingly outstanding work, like in this role that is again, just a superhero movie role. And I, you know, and I don't want to be reductive. You know how much I love the Marvel stuff and how I love yep. these movies and that I've been on this ride for a while. I don't mean to say, well, for a superhero movie, it's good. Like, it's just that sometimes the ways in which things are tackled over time, like it takes me off guard because it is still silly. We still have, you know, gods flying around swinging hammers and robots shooting out of their hands and stuff like it's there is silly stuff, too. Right. So you, you don't always uh, you're not always ready. You get a little blindsided by how um incredibly well handled some of the serious bits are as well so um good stuff there but 
that would say if the first one's a 10, this one's a nine. I don't know that the first one's a 10, but I think just from a relative scale, I think this is a, um, just to some of the nuts and bolts of being a superior movie, it was maybe a little less engaging than the last one. Um, but, uh, but overall, all the, the good, strong component parts just made it that much heavier and that right. much, you know, uh, uh, more well done. So, and uh, yeah, did uh, it- high marks gotta see it. Did it read to you like an origin story again because they had to deal with the fact that we didn't have the same guy? Um, no, no, it does. It does. It doesn't do that. Um, the origin story part is definitely with the villain. They spend a lot of time on that. And then a little bit of origin story about the new character that they're going to have the TV show about, but really they, it's more about the family dynamics. It's more about, it's like, um, what if house of the dragon, but no incest and no dragons. Like it's like, it's like that, like you're, you're kind of sort of a little bit, not maybe nearly as, as, uh, categorically as, as house of the dragon does, but you're dealing with succession. You're dealing Got with that it. problem. You like they, there, there is a vacuum now. There is not a black Panther. And what does that mean for the world? What does that mean for Wakanda? What does that mean for the villains? You know what I mean? Like there's nobody on the throne right now, you know, and like a queen regent is not enough, right? Like there's a, you know, there's somebody else has to be there. And so how do you deal with that? And who, what do people think? And, you know, do they listen to people? And, and, you know, and so that's more the thing that is the more, more the thing I will say, I don't know that this is very spoilery, but I will say there is one thing that I, I wasn't that fan uh, that a fan of is that um, they do take a little time to come out of Wakanda to kind of deal with um, uh, the United States in particular, but I'm sure, you know, that that would be the world over. But the idea that uh, the United States is like not too happy with the fact that Wakanda isn't helping out the way that they want them to. Like, you know, Wakanda is a kind of a superpower all right. of a sudden, right? With, you know, vibranium and all the, you know, amazing technology they have. And, and so a lot of countries want their assistance and they sort of feel entitled to their assistance. Um, and so I think, I think what's kind of weird for me is that like they, they do kind of kind of come out of Wakanda every once in a while and sort of check in with the politics part of it, um, particularly the American politics of it and, and a couple of characters that are sort of discussing that. And it's a weird thing because like, I don't know, I I, I I guess I felt every time that came up, I, I kind of felt like saying out loud, like, so the fuck what? Like, who cares? <laughs> like, like it, it's just like a weird, like, because like, what are they going to do? Like, they can't get into Wakanda. They don't even know where it is. And if they right. do get in there, they're going to get their ass handed to them. So like, so what, they're mad that they don't have the stuff? Okay, we get it. They're mad. Like, I, like there was nothing actionable that they could do, like at all. And so... Th- that is sort of it was very toothless to me i just didn't like that part very much like it, it almost made it was almost distracting a little bit when they would kind of you know cut out to that part like like they do a nice early on great reveal about that you know and it also showing that ramonda is the the uh, queen regent and all that and and they they establish that that's a problem politically but after that like every time they kind of remind me of the fact that like you know the americans are just not so happy about the fact that they're not getting aid i'm like well oh 
who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, they were, like they can be upset about it or not. Like, they're not right. going to get anything out of them. Like, there's no fighting that's going to happen that's going to change anything. Like, they'll, they'll, they'll get hammered, you know? So that was just a, a small part that just sort of felt like it was wasted screen time. Like, I just didn't, you know what I mean? Like, I, okay, I get it. They would like to have Wakanda help them. They're not whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it just, it just felt like a weird part of the, the thing, you know? So anyway. Yeah, um, it sounds like one of those, like, political points that doesn't really further the story i mean because isn't it like very much an allegory of the inverse where america is constantly either giving aid or being asked to give out aid where they don't want to and it's exactly that so they're just they're making it to the americans wanting wakanda to give aid just to really put it on the nose as as much on the nose exactly right and you're right like if america was about to attack Wakanda over this, then that's important to the story. Or, you know, I mean, it's Thanos. He's been down on his luck after getting his house kicked and he just really needs some food stamps. Can, you know, Wakanda help? Right. 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 Like, okay. Interesting. Like that's relevant. But yeah, I, I do feel like Marvel does this from time to time where they just kind of get into, they're relatively deft in not punching us in the face with their political statements is, some other parties in Hollywood frequently do, and that's fine. Like political discourse is the allegory is fair for art, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's the best way. The best way to learn something is to learn it through a story. Mm-hmm. So yep. no, no negativity on that. But if it doesn't also advance the story, then you're not doing that thing. Right. 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 Exactly. It, it becomes more of a, a transparent homework lesson, right? Instead of actually right. being anything that is part of what we're writing here. So, so yeah, minor point, but it did really sort of like grind everything to a halt when that would happen. Some people were kind of placing that on um, Martin Freeman's character, uh, Agent Ross. I don't think it's his problem because he was in the first movie and he was perfect in the first movie. Um, I think it's more just that like, because he's, you know, part of the, I guess he's CIA. I, I think CIA um, that, you know, like it's, it, that he has to sort of be the foil to which we now need to discuss that. So anyway, tiny point other than that, the, the triumph of that movie is, is, is how, uh, how beautifully it handles, uh, Chadwick Boseman's passing, um, in both a fictional context and also having the catharsis of, you know, that actor not being with us anymore. Um, so really high marks there. I, I don't know that you could have done that better given the the thing you were given, right? Like they, they were, they were, they were handed a pile of, you know, sorry, you have to now totally rewrite and change your movie. And so good luck. And so for that, I think that's about as successful as you're going to get. You can't do better than that to me. So yeah, good movie, uh, good recommendation, you know, like most Marvel stuff, you're going to have to see it anyway, but it was, uh, but it was a uh, worthwhile, good, 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 uh, Good, good job all around. I was, I was very impressed. That's good. Yeah, I'm really happy to hear that. I think this is one of the first. Uh, this is the first movie since Thor, and Thor was uh, the Love and Thunder, the first since the new cycle began in big budget pictures, right? And so yep. Love and Thunder was really kind of like, oh, no. Like, it was a little over the top and a little bit like we just forgot to take the um the font size down on our pen a little bit to like do some of that detail work that we need to do like we left uh, ms paint open at like 36 point everywhere just <laughs> freaking painted and, and comic sans by the way <laughs> that's that's correct <laughs> it, it really yeah. was just a, a train wreck of a movie and so it sounds like at least in the 
pantheon of Marvel movies, this was more a return to form of what you what it says on the tin. Like it's it's what a Marvel movie is supposed to be, whether it's the best one or not the best one. It's worth the big fun ride of strapping in and enjoying it. Yeah. 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 Very, very, very good recommendation there. I think it's uh, I, I would almost like turn over to the other, you know, corridor in the mouse house and say, hey, this is what you should have done with Star Wars. You should have realized that, you know, Carrie Fisher's not around. Go fix that shit. You know what I mean? And do it this way. Like, understand that, you know, the zeitgeist of 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 a actor passing needs to be handled in a certain way. And you should handle it this way. You should handle the shared grieving in a way that honors the character, but doesn't string their dead body along like it's weekend at Bernie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's uh, what should have happened and did not. Yeah. But, uh, um, but here is great. Yeah. I think the problem with Star Wars is that it really is a personality cult of a storyline. And you can't have Star Wars if it doesn't directly touch a Skywalker. And so, like, right. they really have, like, whoever, like, took on those reins to do the final three movies just really believed that all that mattered in the entire Star Wars universe was the Skywalker lineage. And, like, that was meh. I don't want to get on that high horse. Um, The high horse I want to get on is in the past several weeks, the only video games I've played have been Spider-Hack, in which my six-year-old absolutely mopped the floor with me after Mm -hmm. I introduced him to the game. Like, he he went to the dojo. He, oh man. Like, we pulled that game up right after it launched, and I was just uh, zipping around, double lightsabering my spider all over the place and making him rethink his six years on this planet. And then he went to the woodshed. I I left him with it, and he has been (laughs) online. He has been honing his skills. And wow, I really hope he applies this kind of deliberate practice to anything else in his life because he beat me 10 to nothing. I I didn't even know what happened. Like he was throwing me into lava. He was lightsabering me. He was throwing like homing missiles at me, jumping all over the place, uh, enlivening all of my spider-based fears in life. (laughs) Um, It was really something. So that's my one gaming experience. And the only other one um, we pulled down um, Gunfire Reborn on Game Pass. And the two of us have played that a little bit, which is, really not a very good first-person shooter. Like, I know mm. it's really well-liked, and it was exciting that it was on Game Pass, and it's kind of small. Like, the rooms are very Doom-like. You know, they're, like, small, old, enclosed spaces. Some good variety in the weapons. An interesting take on the whole roguelike idea. But it also, like, the roguelike idea... You get through that first board, which is as far as we've gotten, having played a lot, and they throw the first boss at you, and you are not ready for that guy. He's just a big rhino of a dude, and it doesn't matter. I think I'm, like, level 8, and Henry's level 7. Like, we've been, like, juicing our guys, juicing our guys, and going at it, and just pancaked every time. Wow. Um, To the extent that, like, since he can't just master it through pure force of will like he did on Spider-Hack... He's kind of checking out like he's not at six into the idea of a roguelike that you have to grind the same board a hundred times to be able to get past the first boss. Sure. Um, so meh on that. Spider Hack is still crazy, goofy fun. I love it. It's like perfect party game. But what I'm trying to say is that I haven't been getting enough video games in my diet. Mm. And I'm hoping you can help me with that because you have and tell me 
where I should direct my attention, what's good, what's not. I know it hasn't been cursed to golf, so there's got to be. And it hasn't been. And they, I did see that there was some, uh, there was a patch that just came out for Chris to golf. And I was like, huh, that should be cool for somebody. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Do I still even have that installed? Like, that's what I said. <laughs> Cause I, yeah. so sure does it make it go not a golf and... game? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a infinite lives maybe, or, uh, not making it punishing any, any, anything that I, I would make me go back to that. I, oof. um, so yeah, so I guess uh, I'll pivot to a roguelike out of the trio of games that I can uh, I can talk to talk about, um, and I'll probably do it. And I think that the order that I put it on our dock here is probably the way to go. So I'll start with Vampire Survivors. Um, this is this is not actually the original version of this, if you will, kind of like how. Um, uh, I want to say this was a mobile game. I, I may be messing this up, but I think it was a mobile game, Vampire Survivors was, and it was actually kind of a, a riff on another game that did this very similarly, um, and yet Vampire Survivors was one that did really well. Um, they then ported it to PC, so v Vampire Survivors was on PC for a time. Uh, I came to PC Game Pass uh, not too long ago um, and was hearing great buzz about it, that it was going to be really cool. I don't think it was particularly expensive. I think it was a couple dollars on Steam. Like, it's not... It's not an expensive game at all anyway. Um, and then recently, I guess as recently as end of last week, maybe, um, they launched it on Game Pass um, on Xbox. Um, and so I got a chance to play Vampire Survivors. So Vampire Survivors is, and I've, I'll borrow for, uh, liberally from a couple of different reviews slash you know, uh, snippets of people talking about this. It's as if you took Geometry Wars and Cookie Clicker and Castlevania, and you put them all in a blender, and then you poured it out and said, I made a game, and then you run away. That that would be Vampire Survivors. Um, so, so it is a, so to describe it, you are a character in the middle of the screen, and you're in the middle of this field. It's a top-down, 8-bit, 2D-ish looking uh, game, right? And you start out and you're like Simon Belmont from Castlevania and you're a vampire hunter kind of dude with a whip, okay? okay? And you are walking around this this level and you don't attack at all. You Your guy auto attacks. There is no hitting a button to attack. You literally, every three seconds, his whip just goes whap. And he just sends his whip out every three seconds. And so you just walk around. All you do is walk around because he's just attacking every three seconds. And hordes, and I mean hordes, hordes in the way that you don't really see in any other game, like hundreds of vampires and bats and praying mantises and tulips and ghosts and ghouls and things just come at you. And most of them come at you very slowly, but there's... Uh, I believe the uh, colloquial term and very accurate term is a fuck ton of <laughs> guys are after you and they come at you from all directions and they have slightly different speeds and different strengths and there's skeletons and there's skeletons with armor and weapons and there's just, you know, and they're all that. And so you're just walking around and you start the game and it's just your whip every three seconds. 
and you just and as they walk up to you, you hit them. And when you kill them, not all of them, but almost all of them, they leave little blue jewels on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so you pick up a blue jewel and another one and another one and another one. And you see the bar fill up at the top. And when you get a certain amount, it stops the game, pauses the game, and it gives you a choice of three different upgrades and they're randomized every time three random upgrades and one will be um a powered up whip another whip um uh, one will be garlic and one will be um uh like a speed upgrade so that you can walk a little faster and so you have to pick one and you pick one and upgrade and then when you and then it just unpauses the game and you're back out there and there's just hordes fuck tons of guys coming at you and so if you do the whip now that upgraded whip actually whips in both directions so you're not just whipping in the way you're facing but directly behind Mm -hmm. you as well um and so you're killing more guys getting more blue gems and then you collect more blue gems pauses the game another three pop up (laughs) And you just keep upgrading and they just keep coming oh, and man. you just keep upgrading and they just keep coming. All and random. Like, I hope it's a gun. Uh, garlic again? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> my breath is awful and I can't kill anything. Uh, side note, always get the garlic. It's the best weapon in the game. <laughs> but, um, but man, um, and so it is very much this roguelike idea because they don't really stop coming, right? Like there's just like hordes and hordes of vampires. And so your whole thing is you are, you do have freedom of movement. So you do have to walk around and get out of the hordes and, you know, dip this way and dip left and dip right and go up and down and move out of the way of the hordes. And, you know, when the tulips come, it's like this huge ring of tulips that's around you so that you can't really get away. So you kind of have to kind of dodge even more than normal. Um, and uh, so all of your different power-ups really just have to be survive until the next time you can get more upgrades. Um, and um, in between that, some of what will drop on the ground is gold, okay? So if gold drops on the ground, gold you bank, you keep, so that when this run is over, you will then get dumped to an upgrade screen where you can get permanent upgrades. Okay. Um, and so those permanent upgrades are more speed, more health, uh, armor, um, better damage, um, you know, there's a luck one that'll let you pick from four things instead of three things if you power it up enough. And um, so those like you'll bank so that, you know, you'll always those are persistent upgrades that you'll have throughout the game. Um, and it really probably not since Dead Cells has gotten me that one more round thing in such a addictive way. Like and to look at it, it's very harmless. It's very 8-bit pixely, right. you know, kind of silly thing. But man, when it grabs you and you just have to start doing one more run, one more run. And then you look down and it's like, oh, shit, that was like an hour. And I was <laughs> I'd just been doing runs and, like, you know, you it can really grab you. It's a, a very, very impressive, uh, simple, but but really well done, um, just thirsting for that next upgrade and that next you know and and because they're randomized like you start learning builds right like like yeah. if you get different things you figure out you know how you're going to build this character and and what's going to be best for you um so you know cool water cooler stuff uh, my youngest actually played played it some and he you know he's he likes this certain build and he's like he's like oh dad you really should get the axe the axe is great but i used the axe already and, and i was like I, I know the axe i said i hated it i don't want to use the axe it's a terrible thing but he loves it he loves using that, um, that. so it's like kind of cool to like watch people's builds and stuff and go on um super 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 dumb simple to pick up and play and, and gets you really into it so um highest recommendation on game pass you cannot try it even if it wasn't it's like five bucks or something it's super cheap so 
Um, yeah, you know, no, that, really, really neat game. That's super. And I, I do love that. I mean, Dead Cells and Hades and like some of these modern, you know, they're roguelike or roguelite in the sense that they have that perma upgrade thing that makes it, it's a spiral, not a circle, right? Like yes. a true roguelike game is a circle where you're just trying to get as far as you can on the run, like um, Downwell and some of those others that like really don't bank anything, but you get power ups and builds. But you know, this is in that realm where, like, with Hades, you get a selection of weapons to outfit, and then you get those buffs from the gods, and, like, you can sort of choose which dungeon you're going into, which room next, and you'll get a little insignia that'll tell you at least, like, which god will be there to give you a buff, although you don't know what it is. And so it's very similar where you have your playstyle and your perma upgrades, and then you know how you want to go about augmenting it, and you can get, like, 70 80% of the way there on a run and dead cells very similar like in that you're constantly getting better and getting further and buffing your character and it is just like that gacha machine of a game where like yeah like i mean to hear you talk about it it sounds terrible you're dealing with thousands of terrible things trying to kill you and you've got a guy with probably the lowest pulse rate in the world just thwacking his whip like uh, you know to because i know you love sports references like watching Major League Pitchers, which we did recently, like when uh, fucking they throw a fastball and a uh, hundred mile hit comes right at them and like they just go and then throw it to first base. Like it's just like uh, backyard sports, like not I would be there crying at the 10,000 people around me that like if I drop this fucking ball, everybody's lives are over and I'll never be able to set foot in whatever city we're in again. Those guys are just it, it is that they just thwack 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 it's fine thousands of zombies thwack yep it sounds terrible (laughs) i can't wait to play it yeah 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 yeah. yeah. highest marks yeah yeah you're right he that that his that little uh protagonist there it reminds me too there's a total of four protagonists so you can actually unlock uh other ones like there's one that has more movement speed and mm-hmm. one that gets more experience and one, you know so like there's you know like little you know there's you know there's other characters you can unlock outside of the first one the first one is fine you know what i mean like because it's but i could see a certain play style maybe that you know some of the other ones would be cool so uh but yeah it's uh it's a neat thing man it's a it, it, it is really the gameplay first thing. Like I, I'm, you're not going to be, you know, showing off your Xbox Series X, you know, graphical ray tracing prowess with this thing. I mean, this thing absolutely could run on a potato of a phone. Um, but it, but it is, uh, you know, it is, it is uh, super cool. And I mean, maybe some of it would stress out some devices because it is literally thousands of things on the screen, you know, coming at you. Um, so uh, uh, kind of interesting that way. But uh, Vampire Survivors, very, very, uh, very good, very, very enjoyable. Love it. So you didn't stop there. Like you've obviously quit your job and played nothing but games for a week. And I'll have to read your book on self-help when it comes out. Uh, I'm really interested of the things that you posted up to talk about Somerville. I think we watched the launch trailer when it first dropped a year ago. Um, Mm -hmm. Looked atmospheric, really interesting. I have read a couple of reviews, non-spoilerly, non Spoilery. Spoilery? Yes. Spoilery. Spoiler-esque. And it seemed really mixed, like some very thick divides in whether or not it was great or a, a total train wreck. 
So I, I, I did read a few uh, reviews afterwards. Um, I stayed directly out of them until I played it because I wasn't sure if anybody was going to ruin it, you know, and because and sometimes the Internet's bad. And I uh, um, I want to say that I agree with all of those points. I think that uh, I, I do think that. So this is Jump Ship is the uh, name of the development studio. Um, Dino, I don't remember his last name, and maybe somebody else or a couple other people. Maybe they were in. They were part of the studio Play Dead, and Play Dead did Limbo, and Play Dead did Out or Inside, or the two games that they uh, made prior to this, um, and so. Dino, whatever his last name is, he, um, we'll just call him Dino. Um, he, Dino. uh, left play dead to form jump ship studios here and, um, form or join or whatever. Um, and then I, I want to say that there was a little bit of pe- pedigree from play dead beyond that, that, that went with jump ship as well. Um, and so, um, anyway, so you, you have that, creative vision that brought you limbo and inside coming into this right like um, where you have these um very controlled kind of smaller games that are wrapped in a in a stunning presentation right like for its time limbo was this outstanding uh indie puzzle platformer title that just exuded style with uh well we talked about score right and how important score is and like and the minimalist score of that game was was you know second to none um very you know scary ghoulish and weird you know some of the stuff that was happening in there big spiders so of course you know as frightening as possible two thumbs Um, up (laughs) 10 out of 10 from rich and uh so um moving inside I, i always really loved that that growth between limbo and inside because it you could see with inside like it was the money right like you could see that they just had a bigger budget they could just do more now than they had with with limbo and uh just how uh how much more fully featured that world was right um and still had that same quirkiness and that same like pseudo horror um i think both limbo and inside have endings that sort of come off the rails right like they just sort of get real weird at the end um before they finish out um and so then in comes uh somerville and uh, Somerville, you know, to kind of they, they, all the trailers kind of show this and it's not really spoilerific to say that, like, it is just, you know, a husband and wife and a kid and a dog and very, you know, kind of suburban domestic. It seems like somewhere over in Europe, you kind of get some basic undertones of that a little later in the game that that's where they are. Um, so it's not in America, um, but they're there. And there's this very kind of war of the worlds thing that is going on. Like all of a sudden it starts within the you know first couple of minutes, you know, there's aliens kind of descend and, you know, are kind of, you know, attacking the world and, and everything that goes along with that. So that's sort of the premise that it sets up with. Um, some the highlights here for sure very cinematic like uh, they have gotten more money still right like more production value still the consoles are much more powerful than they ever were they get to just do more now than they could before um 
but the idea of their um it's it's presented first of all in i think 21 by 9 instead of 16 by 9 so you have black bars on your widescreen television on the top and bottom so it's like a very wide presentation of what's happening um i will say as a side note a technical side note it was the first time i just wanted to go buy a new tv and bring it home because my tv wasn't big enough to watch it and like the combination of them filming this in 21 by 9 filming it rendering it in 21 by 9 and their penchant for wanting very 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 big wide shots of some very huge scenes um, meant that some of it even to the text and, and the accessibility they're in very tiny um i actually like halfway through playing it i actually got out of my couch and sat in the middle of the floor yeah. to get closer to the tv because i really needed to like kind of understand the tiny little bits that were going on on screen um just kind of frustrating i don't know if this thing will run on a steam deck but i'm going to tell you right now i don't think you could see a goddamn thing on a steam deck like it is like you know you've got a big tv I, like that's just a bad design like I agree. I agree. It is awfully beautiful, cinematic and atmospheric. I'm not saying that they didn't do good work here. Um, I don't know about the 21 by nine thing. Like I, 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 I think that's ridiculous, quite frankly. Like I, I so Spider-Man, right. We just, we, we've been playing Spider-Man. I've gotten a little farther in that recently, but, but I, I'm way behind you. I did not beat it yet. But one of the things when it was ported to PC is they added ultra widescreen mm -hmm. support. So um, the game will render in ultra widescreen, you know, if you have an ultra widescreen monitor, which I do at home, my, my, right. this monitor, as do you, um, I, I guess you played it on steam deck mostly. So that may not apply here, nope. but, um, but, uh, but the ultra wide, uh, for that is cool because for one, I'm a, a foot to two feet away from my monitor here, yep. right? <laughs> you That's know, a right. couple feet away. So I'm, I'm right up on all that real estate. And then also for that game, it's additive in a way that like when you're swinging around New York City, it's like very, you know, you're just getting more New York City in your, you know, in your periphery while you're swinging around. And so it's it's additive. Right. Um, this when it is going to be primarily a console game, I do not actually know. And maybe I can find this out about uh, for next next pod, but I do not know if it renders ultra widescreen natively in PC or if it like actually goes double letterbox which would be extra awful i don't know what it does there that would freak yeah. me out a little bit if it does um but in any case that was a it was a usability problem that also lent even further into how cinematic and atmospheric it was so i i I understand why they made the creative choice to do that. I just feel like it it was maybe just a little bit too hard to to uh, capture everything they wanted to without literally having a screen that's another, you know, 12 inches bigger than what I have in my living room, right. which is already plenty big for that tiny room that I have. So I, I just, you know, frustrating in that way. Um, it uh it is also the first of these three games now and I'm, I'm lumping all three of these games in because it is that you know guy dino dino something i really should just google his name but um the the lead um at, at, at now jump ship that wasn't play dead um this is the first of the three games that is 3d um uh, like as in 3d movement mm -hmm. um so those other two games were 2d games even if there was like foreground and right, and, right, right. and uh, background stuff right but this is actually a 3d game so you're walking around in scenes where you can go into the foreground and come back out of the and, and uh go into the background and and you know uh move around in ways that where you have to account for 3d space um 
you can tell that this is their first game of doing that. Um, it is, uh, there's a, <laughs> there's a word, uh, that I've heard recently, a whole bunch of fussy and, uh, it is fussy. Like that's the best way to describe that. It is very fussy. Like it feels like frustrating, um, to, to, to grapple with. Um, there are times I actually recorded one on Xbox live. Please don't go look at it until you beat the game. Um, but, uh, there, I recorded one where I got stuck in the environment and I had to start over at a checkpoint. And that was one of two times that that happened in the game alone where I had to restart the checkpoint because I got stuck in the environment somewhere. Yeah. Um, there were also times where even when I didn't get fully stuck, like I was like really kind of like the character was just freaking out and I was trying to get myself moved, you know, somewhere where I could get to the puzzle or fix what I needed to do. Um, so not great from the technical perspective, just in terms of technical polish. I don't want to say the technicals are bad because it is a beautiful game and they do some things that, um, are for games that are much bigger in terms of budget. Um, they punch pound for pound. I mean, it is gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous in some, in some moments. Um, but I, it, I do, I don't want to question their uh, decision for 3d because there are 3d adventure puzzle games that don't have this problem. Um, but you can just straight up get lost or you can just break it in ways that for a game that I actually started and finished in under five hours, um, is a little frustrating. Like it feels like it could be cleaner. It could be more curated. Um, so I don't know if that means wait for a patch to clean it up a little bit or, or what have you, because I don't want people to wait on it for the, the gameplay of it and the story. Right. But, um, but man, it feels like they could just give it another month worth of spit and polish to get it where it needs to be. Cause there are just some times where I just got straight up hung up on the environment. The checkpointing is pretty good. So even if you do that, you don't really get set too far back. Um, but it is still a little bit frustrating that you're the reason that you're not going to beat this part is just because the game broke and isn't doing what it's supposed to. Um, so anyway, that's just a, that's a, a, a side technical aside that I do think actually probably affected people's enjoyment of the game. Quite frankly, when you were talking about some of the reviews that you read, I believe that there's some people who were very frustrated by how fussy it gets. Um, so that, and then it does also go off the rails at the end. It is a weird, uh, play dead inspired kind of we're going to finish this thing on a weird ass note and then roll the credits right um and they you know they they know how the hell to do that it's uh it's pretty neat um uh and weird and uh it actually unlike the other two does encourage maybe another playthrough um in in uh, making some different choices to get where you would be um so i don't I don't really know. I, I may go back to do that before I find out why I would do that because it's such a short game. I think you can also just do chapter select and just, you know, change some of your choices. Um, but it would be interesting to kind of see the other versions of how the thing plays out at the end. Um, yeah, but overall, um, really cool. I, I stopped for a second and thought about you and Eric um, when I thought about like how you guys are kind of... Um, uh, sometimes let's use the polite, uh, less discerning when it comes to sci-fi <laughs> and sometimes you guys will just, you know, whatever has got the word sci-fi in front of it, you'll kind of give it a, give it a shot. Um, this has the good sci-fi. There is some really good sci-fi in, in, in Somerville. There's some like cool ship designs and cool stuff in it that like really feels like, man, if somebody grabs this and turns this into a TV show or a movie, it would be awesome because there's some really, really neat stuff that, uh, obviously costs this developer a whole lot less than maybe, uh, uh, it would to fully realize it in, uh, in a, in a 
movie, but uh, some really, really neat stuff, like stuff that'll actually like make you pause for a second that like, you know, as much as it's the small, you know, thing where you're just this guy walking around, you know, <laughs> with your dog trying to figure out what happened to the world. Um, and then all of a sudden, like they take the lid right the hell off and show you some cool sci-fi, like, like real cool, like the kind of stuff that's like, like, like makes you think about the big budget, like big design, you know, like, you know, cool ships and cool bases and stuff that are like, it's just really top tier, top tier stuff. So, um, I think just the, the, the sci-fi part of it, that, that, that will, that will blow your hair back. I think you'll like the sci-fi parts a lot and it's so short. I, I, I can't not recommend it anyway. Right. Like right. it's just, you really not enough of your time to just clock through the whole thing and at least get your first playthrough in and, and try it. So, um, that's so super glad to have played it for it to me to say that it's shorter than both limbo and inside is sort of stunning, you know yeah, what I mean? Wow. Cause those were short games already. Um, so it's very, 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 very short, but, uh, but a beautiful little tale. I think it handles itself really well. It does things that, you know, scratch all the right sci-fi itches in a, in a, in a very cool way. So, um, you know, for all of how fiddly and fussy it gets at, at points, I think, uh, um, you know, maybe they patch it maybe they get it a little bit cleaner, but I, I, I would recommend it. I would think it's a, uh, it's a little uneven in ways that like uh, limbo and insider, like basically perfect experiences. Yeah. Um, they aren't the best games in the world. They are some of my favorite, but they, but they are, they set out to do specific things, right? That's limbo right. sent out to do a thing and did it perfectly. There was nothing left on the table. They knew what they wanted to make. They made that game and it worked beautifully inside is a bigger budget version of exactly that same yes, it is. ethos yeah. of there's nothing left on the table. We executed every last bit of code here exactly how we wanted to. This, you know, you can see the seams, right? Like there's even a thing, um, it happened at least twice for me, um, where as a 3D game, you're walking from one scene to another, right? Like it's not always a continuous shot. Sometimes you're walking through a door and you're right. coming out the other side and it's not panning, it's actually cutting. and. There's some weird um, triggers um, some for the camera changes that they haven't cleaned up because like you'll walk into a room and it'll cut, cut and then cut back again and like and, and jump in this weird, very like unpolished, like beta sort of way. Um, and it's just weird. It's weird because like the game is so expensive and it's so big, um, expansive and big. I don't know that it's necessarily expensive in the way that a Call of Duty is, but it's it, it is more expensive than Insider Limbo. But but there's that little bit of polish. It's weird. It's almost like they maybe wanted to ship this next year, not this year, and they just really needed to get it out before December or something like. I don't know why, like they wouldn't just clean up these last bits uh, if, unless there was like a contractual reason to get this out before the end of 2022. Um, anyway, I won't harp on that stuff too much. I do. It is to be forewarned. I mean, it is buggy enough that I feel like the, the game doesn't suggest it would ever be this buggy. It's so cinematic and so, you know, rich that you just don't feel like that would be the case. So um, anyway, yeah. um, so Somerville, uh, pretty, uh, pre pre pretty great stuff. I, I love the type of work they do. So even with its slight unevenness, it was still worthy, worthy thing to, to check out. Yeah, I really do want to play it. I mean, I'm kind of so I've still got a finished Deathloop. I'm so painfully close to getting that done and it's just been a week or two of not gaming time. Um, and I feel like I'm not going to be able to stop myself from the, the roguelike vampire game because it sounds like my kind of torture. Yep. Um, so, you know, it may just end up, depending on how quickly they get that patched up, that I do <clears throat> give it a week or so to see, you know, 
if they clean it up. But I'm, I think you're right in saying like, it doesn't sound like those problems are fatal to the experience and it is a short experience that's really more about about the journey, about the scenery, about the experience than it is about the mechanics for the game. So, yeah, yeah no, I think yeah. that's um, uh, definitely uh, great. I love that team. Um, I'm going to segue you to the last game that you have listed because I can't imagine something. So we have 8-bit zombie fighting hordes. We have very serious, heavy-duty sci-fi. And we have, I don't know, a 2D paper cutout with British people. That's Pentiment, yeah. That's a, it's a, um, I got, I don't want to say, but maybe half an hour to 40 minutes in it because I finished Somerville much earlier than I thought I was going to. <laughs> and I just had more time in my night. So I said, all right, well, let's try out Pentiment. Let's get to that. Um, so we talked about it a bit on last week's pod. This is, um, uh, another Game Pass game. All three of these Game Pass um, and uh, uh, Pentiment was um, is a um, the team that did Fallout seventy six. Um, so that was um, uh, it is Obsidian is the uh, is the is the team that that uh, did this. And this was um, I don't remember if I talked all about this on the pod last week, but it was a, like a, a sub team in Obsidian um, that that created pentiment they kind of had this passion project that they wanted to do uh josh sawyer is the developer um that uh, he's kind of a beloved uh, industry figure and uh he really wanted to make um this game that's like this 15th century uh, murder mystery um but it's told as through this like almost like um that that era's tapestries um and their art styles that went with the tapestries and the the scribblings of the writings and um speaking about uh fonts and uh that's uh you know the font treatments in this is just are just absolutely beautiful um and it's uh it's set up that way you're you're working on some sort of work of art i don't remember if you're a writer or an artist or whatever and then you're you know and so you're at you know at some some town somewhere and um it, it starts out it's very adventure gamey you know it's just you know a lot of uh reading dialogue and you know talking with characters and stuff you know it's um but um it's a so it's a smaller game in that way like it's uh, all of these end up being very small games relative to your big blockbusters and pentiment is certainly a smaller game but uh, what a, what an interesting art style. I don't think I've seen anything that's even close to this, you know, cool animations and, um, lots and lots of text and that are in different, like fully realized font treatments. Um, and, uh, yeah, from what I can see so far, like you're kind of like, you know, segueing into what looks like a murder mystery and you sort of go around asking people questions and trying to find out what happened and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's supposed to be a game that like is, it's and I don't and I'm going to be interested to see you know your thoughts and take on this you know as, as it rolls out and as I finish it and hopefully you get to play it too, um, where it's you're not going to be able to complete it in a single run. So that like by going to this person and accusing this person of this and going to this person and telling them this, you're going to piss off other characters and you're going to disillusion and disassociate yourself from other characters and that's never coming back. Like if you you so it's like a game that's not going to always. Have 
have an easy choice. You're gonna make, you're gonna th- cast your lot with this group, and that means that this group gets alienated, right? Like, and and you have to play through the linear narrative to the other side to see if all the choices you made end up with the conclusion you want. Um, so there's no one right answer and one right path through it. Like you will, you will in- inevitably, you know, have people who just aren't thrilled with what you did um and so it's like and it's doing that on purpose which is pretty neat um i, I think that's a, a cool way to kind of experience it so that your playthrough and my th- playthrough might just be totally different you know and um who we decide is the murderer might be totally different and um interesting way of, of handling it it's getting ridiculously good reviews right now like almost like 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 stunning like nines and tens like everybody's like just freaking out about it um i think that's probably just as much of it being just a very fresh and wholly original thing as it is maybe a successful game um but uh uh loved it i got to sit back on my couch because the fonts are nice and big so i (laughs) didn't have to be on the floor uh so that was fun um so not too deep into it right now but i i absolutely adored it um for what it was doing in the beginning it's it's charming and um it, it does that whole thing uh like fallout does where as you're playing it you answer questions that other people are asking you and that's how you build your character so like you say what your history was and who, where you went what your job was and like and that that's how you're building out your version of, of your character yeah, that is very um, cool you know i think really the the summary of all three of these games for me is how i don't know that they could survive in a world without game pass and i think it's worth taking a moment you know talking about somerville We've had this conversation before. I don't know if we've really dove into it on the pod, but the idea of value and this kind of race, you know, and Ubisoft and Assassin's Creed games are kind of exactly, you know, the the albatross of the gaming industry of we need to cram 70 to 90 hours of content into a game so that it has value. And so every destination has, you know, 15 different things to collect. And I think Spider-Man also has this, although they did it a little better because it was very much a Grand Theft Auto web version kind of game where it was an open exploration game. So those are good there, but sometimes we fall on this sort of needing to add value to justify $70 on a game. And as a consumer, if I only have $70 to spend in a game, like I I need 70 hours of content, like that's my game for the year. Like I, I need to know it and love it and be with it. And it's gotta have replayability or multiplayer or something to justify the exorbitant cost of what video games are in a world of streaming services, in a world where nobody's even asking you to go to the movie theater anymore and spend on popcorn and soda. Like you can just sit and wait for it to come to Disney plus and, pay that and have all the content that you can have. I think a game like Somerville, Vampire Survivors, maybe Pentiment, like it would be very hard to tell somebody to go spend $70 on Somerville or even 40 bucks on it because it's kind of like this, like, a, you know, Marvel shorts. It's like this sort of like thing or um, Love, Death and Robots where it's a, a really good Love, Death and Robots episode, but I'm not going to tell you to buy the DVD of that episode or the Blu-ray of that episode. And so something like Game Pass being successful means that the artistry of these things, because I love that whole compendium. I love that somebody put Love, Death and Robots together. And there's some really great episodes, but there's there's no other place for it. There's no other place for that art to exist. It's not a series. Mm. It's not a movie. Like you're not going to go to a film festival to watch this short, but you've got this place for it. And I think that's what Game Pass is really doing. Like we're talking about these games that 
you can recommend because you can just sign on, download it from Game Pass and play it and enjoy it in its bite-sized, imperfect form. And you're not telling somebody to go spend 40 bucks on it and have, you know, two hours of game and then 40 bucks less. Right. Yeah. And like, it's such a nice, like the three of these games, even though you're not really independent, like what a wide arch of an 8-bit roguelike that, you know, has probably got elements from a lot of other games that you could get at. It's replayable, but it's not very deep. Somerville is very deep, maybe not that replayable and kind of broken, but really impactful for the story that it's trying to tell and the things they're trying to do. And then Pentiment is, again, paper 16th century puppets on a tapestry that you're doing a whole bunch of like text-based mystery solving that's for somebody somewhere and really unique and fresh. But again, it's not going to be your Madden for the year. You know, it's okay. it's a treat. Uh, and right. like that's it that's amazing to me and I know we've dunked on Sony a lot and some other services but like I don't know how you get there without a service like Game Pass and I'm not just trying to cheerlead for Microsoft I have you for that but yeah. I, right like I mean where else can you justify this content and support artists creating it and give them a place where they can put this thing that really doesn't fit anywhere else it's a great point. And I, I think, you know, I think there's been some advents of things over time. I think the Xbox Live Arcade did a good job of finding places for smaller games back in the day. Yep. That was that was decent. You know, that was an important thing to do so that games didn't have to be 60 bucks all the time or 70 bucks all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, and listen, this is some, you know, serious dog fooding here. But uh, Josh Sawyer, you know, who developed Pentiment and is part of Obsidian and Obsidian is a Microsoft studio um, like he he came out and said straight up, he said, I don't see how I would have had this made this game if Game Pass didn't exist because for, and, and it's interesting because on one hand you think, well, OK, of course, he's a Microsoft guy by proxy. So, of course, he's going to say Game Pass is the best thing, of course. But then in another way, when you think about it, like first party studios, right? And I, I talked about this on the pod last week. First party studios. What is the job of a first party studio? It's to make the biggest, baddest most incredible looking sounding thing that you can play in a Best Buy so people buy your box, right? Like it has to be Halo. It has to be Gears. It has to be God of War. It has to be Last of Us. It has to be huge. You have to be able to see it on the, you know, oversized, vivid color palette on your setting on your TV on the other side of the big box store, right? Like you have to be able to see it and be like, what the hell is that? I got to play that. Oh, I got to play that on a PlayStation. Okay, let me go buy a PlayStation, right? Um, and so from a first party perspective, like Pentiment, you know, being made by Obsidian and Obsidian being owned by Microsoft, like when when the studios get together and I'm sure there's some creative freedom there, right? Like the studios probably go to the higher ups that, you know, that are in within the same company, of course, but there's still a finance division and you still have to get funded to make the next game, right? Yeah. Um, whether that's your internal people or not. And, you know, Obsidian's probably going to Microsoft saying, hey, we want to make a game and these are the guys that made Fallout, right? So they're probably saying, okay, cool. Are you going to make another Fallout? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, that's the first question, right? And so for them to be able to make this pitch to make something like Pentiment, right? Like to go back to Microsoft and say, hey, we have this very quirky, very weird idea. We'd love to come out with this thing, you know, and 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 you're right. Like there's just the, the industry has become very risk averse. And that's not just, you know, video games. That's movies. That's 
TV shows. Hell, that's music. Like it's it's risk averse. Like you just need to make the next hit because, you know, there's shareholders and there's you know what I mean. Like that's you just it. there's a business here. It's not about the art, right? And so. How do you have a business that sustains the ability to just take these chances, right? Like, you know, and I'm glad that Pentiment is good or is being reviewed well, at least. I don't know that it'll be my cup or your cup of tea necessarily. And maybe it will be, maybe, you know, but the great news is, is it costs me zero more dollars to try it than not. Right. So I, I get to taste it. And so do a lot of people. And and maybe you find new audiences for new genres and maybe you get to try new things in this place, you know? Um, so it's it's cool. Like, it's a, it's a cool thing. I, I, I'm sure sure game pass is going to be the last version of this i mean nintendo has nintendo online and uh sony's got the all the different playstation plus versions of things and and those are inferior to game pass for now and i make no illusions about the fact that microsoft has got very deep pockets and they can spend on game pass to get people in the door right now i get that and and that's you know i get that there's other companies that are not going to be able to do that but if it benefits me today to play games that i would not have been able to play otherwise then you know, that's a win-win here, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. As a consumer today, if Game Pass is giving me games I wouldn't be able to play on my console today, then that's the way to go. Like, I... I, I I welcome our, our our Game Pass overlords. That's like right. the, That's a you know that's get me to you know these these weird, quirky, strange things that didn't cost me any money to try. You know, and and see where I go. I think that's a it is a great point. I, I think that's it. Yeah, it's a it, and yes, definitely, it's not about Game Pass. If anybody else was doing this, that's the way to move the industry forward. Like get creative things out there. Let people be creative. You know, it's so much of a business, and it's so hard to let creatives be creative in a way that's profitable to. Continue to be creative tomorrow, and for everybody to still be able to pay their rent. And so, if you can do that for everybody, then you know, all, hats off. You deserve all the all the credit here. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, they are making the investment. I think the broader point is what we've talked about here is that's a philosophical business decision. They're seeing the vision of why this is good for business, why this is good for creators. And you're right; like they go back to. XBLA and, you know, promoting and giving away for free every month, like very early on, these smaller indie games like Explosion Man and, you know, games that wouldn't otherwise be out there. So they have that long before Game Pass was even a twinkle in their eye. But, you know, Sony's been on record as saying they don't believe in that value for first party titles and supporting these things. And so it's for them more of like a bargain bin of games that didn't sell well or have reached the end of their useful life. So I don't think it's just the superiority of Game Pass because it's a better service that has more games. It's that way because they chose it to be that way and made mm -hmm. this decision that this was the way forward for the industry where Sony and really Nintendo haven't. Uh, and Nintendo's a different animal. Nintendo is Disney Plus, right? Nintendo has its own catalog of beloved retro titles that everybody other than you are and I who are fully law-abiding citizens has plenty of ROMs for, right? Like sure. whether or not you can emulate SNES games is like the first thing that you do on a new piece of hardware. I've been told other people say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But right, like so they have like, and there's obviously more so than almost any other company because of that, there is a demand to having an online service where all of those old Super Nintendo and NES games are available on a service on demand. You know, they even have that like little box that they put out a while back that had like the USB controllers for the NES. Like it was like mm. the retro NES. <laughs> the NES Mini. Yeah. yeah. So like 
they they feel that, but it's a different philosophy than promoting indiness, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Promoting back catalog is not the same thing, and so like they're kind of in a different lateral because they focus on selling indie titles and their game store is just enormous with these bite-sized games that there's no shortage of spending five to ten bucks on a game you know they're basically like android games that are smaller and that's not being negative that's just like the way their store is built so for them having nintendo online as an all-you-can-eat like broadly inclusive thing isn't something that they're chasing Sony just hates games and development and culture and art, I guess. I don't know. Virtuous <laughs> cycle. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's not to laud Microsoft because they've done it. It's to laud making the business decision and showing the fruits that here are three wildly different games that years ago we would have struggled to recommend. Uh, you know, I would have heard this and said, I guess I'll play it when I come over. doesn't really sound like it's worth my money, but now I can just play it. And by downloading it, like that share of my monthly subscription goes to the games that are getting the buzz and, you know, like the organic idea of Minds is coming in there and devs are getting exposure and it's not, you know, a permanent contract and then they can get downloads. And uh, when It Takes Two was on Game Pass, I was recommending that left and right, and I have a couple friends that don't have Xboxes and don't have access to Xboxes. It just dropped a Nintendo Switch, and I had two people I recommended that to reach out to me to say, I just saw this hit the Switch. I'm buying it tonight. Right? And, like, so that is, like, the rising tide of Game Pass. Like, it, it turns us into evangelists for good creative games, and it's just the right business decision. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For for things like this, you're right. I, I was trying to do the mental math here. Vampire Survivors is five bucks, and you know, Somerville's thirty, and Pentiment's thirty, maybe twenty five, thirty. Like, you know, you're talking about sixty five dollars worth of games there. You know, and like Game Pass today is fifteen bucks a month. I'm sure that's going to go up at some point because everything's going up. But uh, you know, I, I feel like. Like that's a pretty damn. Good, I mean, and in, in I finished Somerville already. I, you know, I get a lot of play out of Vampire Survivors, I'm sure, and I, I plan to beat Pentiment as well. So it's like a lot of hours of gaming, and you know, for that amount of time, I mean, that really, you know, if I were to take that amount of money, you're talking about three, four months worth of Game Pass, right? right? Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good deal, not just you know for a consumer, and it is a good deal for consumers, but it's, it's really, it is that exposure, man. I really, I hope that it, I hope that it keeps going, and for the as long as it's going until the wheels fall off, I do, I do want to support it. You know what I mean? It's a, it's the way to go. It's a, it's a, it's a great, totally. it's a really great uh, uh, thing. I, I would never have, just because of the risk aversion, you know, because everybody's, you know, I, I mean, money's tight for everybody in the world, and so I, I feel like you know, being able to sample three totally different games is, uh, you know, you, you just, you, it's impossible to beat the 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 spread of creativity in just those three games alone so um yeah really hope it continues and virtually everything else that we're talking about too i mean deathloop is also a triple a title that i'm playing on game pass and gears and halo like everything that we want to play like so it's not just these indie games it's also giant expensive triple a titles that uh, take up 60 hours so it's it's really impressive i I didn't want to really close out by rattling off about that but it's just something about the way you got to do this sort of like flight of games 
Yes. Right. It is exactly that. <laughs> like, it's like a whiskey flight. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it, it's, I love that it was able to happen. Um, so yeah, we're running up around 90 minutes. I didn't realize we had been chatting that long, but I think we should probably close it down. I know you really wanted to talk about Elon Musk this week, and it seems like it, we're just going to get by without doing that. And I'm, I'm so sorry that we can't talk about that or Taylor yeah. Swift tickets or the fact that, uh, you know, we're worried about Ticketmaster instead of bombs dropping in Poland in World War Three starting, um, which I mentioned to my wife and she said, well, the bombs only killed two, you know, which one affects more people? Well, <laughs> yeah, like, that's, it's uh, Taylor Swift tickets. I mean, that, that's just, that is the computation there, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. That's it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we close there and we table all of those issues until next week when I'm sure we'll be recording from a safe bunker. Yes, in a safe bunker, but hopefully a safe bunker with turkey and pie. I would like turkey and pie. That is important. At least some like turkey pot pie if times are tough. You know, one of those like cans of pot pie that you like open and it's like all goopy, like kind of dog food, but you heat it up and somehow it tastes good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll do that then. We'll do it. Until then, comrade. Peace out. Catch you next week. Bye.